How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. Oh, you can't sing that on the air. We'll get sued. Oh, my, yeah. My Montel. <laughs> it, it, it's so weird because you know he listens. He's a fan of Montel. Montel Jordan's a big fan of the show. It's a, it's, a, it's a known fact. He talks to us on Twitter. Just kidding. Nobody talks to us on Twitter. That's also true. That's sad. I mean, um, I bet if we sent him a shirt. Yeah, you think so? He'd be, I, you know, he'd be like, how the fuck did you get my address? <laughs> <laughs> That's what he would do. Uh, well, hello and welcome to Cinema Shock. It's the podcast that explores the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. And when we say favorite, we mean movies like today. <laughs> it's somebody's favorite. Every, somebody, every movie every is somebody's movie is, favorite movie. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's your host, Gary oh, Horn. Oh, yeah. Sorry, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Justin Bishop, joined today by Mr. Todd A. Davis. Welcome hey. to the show. Hey, everybody. The very special Todd A. Davis. <laughs> uh, welcome to episode seven of Sex and Violence, the films Yay. of Paul Verhoeven, the final episode in this series. We've been talking about this series since the beginning of June. Guys, this was the summer Oof. of Paul Verhoeven. Oof. Heard of hot girl summer. <laughs> Lots of butts. There were a lot of there were a lot of hot girls in this series, honestly. <laughs> I was trying to think of a clever thing to say for Verhoven, you know, like hot Paul summer or hot Verhoven summer, or like what's he known for? And I was like, hot rape summer. Oh uh, no, <laughs> can't say that. <laughs> I mean he is, he is known for it. I don't know yeah. if it's hot. <laughs> but I mean we're well, yeah, there's that. There's no way around that. It's just thing. uncomfortable rape summer. <laughs> rape summer <laughs> so what oh, you God. do so what you do during the summer wow <laughs> todd's todd's tickled by rape jokes i guess inappropriate rape jokes <laughs> are there any other kind <laughs> oh, other than inappropriate ones <laughs> jokes where you're like wow that was an appropriately timed rape joke todd <laughs> Hey guys, guess what? Did you guys know that this week, as of this recording, three days ago, marked the one-year anniversary of Cinema Shock? Hey, what, cool. really? Yeah, nice. September third. Wow. It's easy for me to remember because it's my wife's, it's my wife's birthday. <laughs> uh, the first episode, like, was released on September third, twenty twenty. A great year, twenty twenty, wasn't it? Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll always look back and remember. We, we uh, yeah, were the, we were the light in the darkness, fellas. That's, That's how right. September third, twenty twenty. So we are officially as Cinema Shock. We are one year old, Yay. which means Todd has been officially a co-host on this podcast for one year, minus Ooh. a couple episodes where he forgot about us or whatever. <laughs> uh, but I think that means that we can officially upgrade Todd from special guest to actual co-host. 
It'd be a <laughs> He made it a year. <laughs> and I mean, welcome, Todd. And thank you so much. If I could just say, I think I lasted a lot longer than people probably thought I would. <laughs> wow. And you're I not didn't... known. You're you're not known for lasting very long. <laughs> <laughs> and I I didn't make nearly as many inappropriate jokes. It's true. Otherwise, I, I, we'd have I, to ask you to leave. Right. I made my fair <laughs> share. Don't 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 get me wrong. We probably edited some of them out, but probably. some of them probably got through. <laughs> <laughs> we have to make those those tough decisions during the editing phase. Sometimes, listen. Sometimes you're in the middle of the peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but sometimes you're the crust. And <laughs> I have no idea what that means. I've been the crust a couple of times. You get you get cut off. That's what happens. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay, I get it. Okay. I, yeah. <laughs> took me a second but anyway guys you ready to get into this final episode because i know this is the episode that everyone when we started paul verhoven they were like i just can't wait for them to get to this episode (laughs) this is the one this is the one we've been waiting for fuck robocop fuck basic instinct we're all ready for some some semi transparent kevin bacon dong that's what we're all here for dozens of people requested it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and here it is. So Paul Verhoeven, you know, a, a little recap. Paul Verhoeven had just had a couple of back-to-back failures, movies that were failures both critically and commercially. Uh, those were Showgirls and Starship Troopers. Mm. So his early Hollywood successes had given him a lot of clout, but, you know, you can only ride on the coattails of those successes for so long. Hollywood is, after all, a business, first and foremost, and they want to make money. And after Showgirls and Starship Troopers, he was at risk of becoming an unbankable director, uh, which is, you know, he was going to director's jail. So for his next film, he made a deliberate decision to make a more kind of conventionally commercial blockbuster, something that would appeal more to the masses. Uh, And that film did end up being his biggest commercial success since Basic Instinct, but it also spelled the end of his career in Hollywood, you know, that he'd been going on for a quarter of a century at this point. Uh, the film that we're talking about is, of course, the infamous Hollow Man. Good morning, sir. Your team's in early today. Something special going on? Sorry, Ed. You know the rules. If we're going to move forward, this is the next logical step. We're ready for you. Here goes nothing. Sebastian, are you in here? So, what's it like being a ghost? Ghosts are dead. I'm very much alive. The question is, what would you do if you knew you couldn't be seen? You trust your eyes. You rely on your senses. Sebastian, this is not funny. You think you're alone. Why did you have to go out in public? You have no idea what it's like. The power of it, the freedom. It's amazing what you can do when you don't have to look at yourself in the mirror anymore. But after he's got you... Tell us where you are. Sorry, Linda. You'll never be sure again. This season... He could be here. He could be anywhere. There's more to fear... than you can see. You have no idea how much fun this is. Right after money, I think Hollywood is truly interested in art, aren't they? 
exactly it's right after money, money which you, okay yeah <laughs> money talks i get it yeah but, but if like we can't right make at, the money let's right make it art that. yeah yeah that's exactly right what they're going is. for okay. it's almost as important yeah so in an interview around the time of hollow man's release paul verhoven had this to say this is him kind of looking back on his you know 25 year career in hollywood and this is what he had to say about making movies in hollywood I think you're a part of a system. You have to acknowledge that it is not only art, like building a house where we cannot live. Skyscrapers look absolutely great from the outside, but what if there is no toilet or something like that? And for a $90 million movie, you need an audience. Now, I, I don't know what exactly he's saying about the toilet thing. Uh, that's, a weird, uh, that's a weird analogy there, Paul. <laughs> but... <laughs> I get the gist of it. You know, in Hollywood, if you're going to spend a lot of money, if you're going to spend $100 million to get a movie made, you need to be able to make a whole lot of money back in order to make that movie successful. You, I think also, he need just a pla- you also need a place to poop. That's, yes. I mean, you do. You I think he just likes to shit on the actual film is what he's saying. <laughs> sort of like Lil Nas or that Tony Hawk skateboard with his blood in the paint. Uh, it's just like there's a piece of Verhoeven <laughs> in every movie that he makes. A little bit of shit, a little bit of jizz in every frame <laughs> of film. Yeah. Or he's <laughs> just saying that things can be dazzling all you want, but you have to, there's some other fundamentals to consider. There, it's like, got to be functional as a film, which means in Hollywood, it, it's got to make money. Otherwise, they just <laughs> wasted millions of dollars. Yeah. And for Showgirls and Starship Troopers, he had spent a lot of money. Those were very expensive movies, but he hadn't made a whole lot of money back. And, and while both of those did end up being profitable in the long run, Hollywood has a pretty short attention span when it comes to what they see as successful. Like a movie is not considered successful in Hollywood unless it's got a strong opening weekend and strong legs. Well, These movies didn't I, we didn't make talk, any we, money until months or years later. We talked at length about the uh, the special effects in Starship Troopers and how kind of groundbreaking they were. Like, did yeah. did anything? Because it made me think. I listened to the episode earlier today, and it made me think of uh, George Lucas with ILM. I mean, I know this was not the same thing, but like, were did anybody's career get kicked off because of Starship Troopers, like special effects wise or anything like that? Not that I know of. I mean, Phil Tippett did the lion's share of that, and he was already well established at that point. Oh, so, yeah. I, I, you know, so I'm not sure. Now, it, it was kind of a pivot in his career. Well, the 90s in general were when they pivoted more to uh, to computer generated imagery. But I, I wouldn't say that it really like made or or affected his career one way or the other because he Phil Tippett at that point was already a, a very well established part of the the Hollywood community. Just the Tippett. <laughs> so that's another shared idea <laughs> for a while uh verhoven at least in in, in retrospect seems he, he seems to consider hollow man to be sort of a for hire hack job like if you hear him talk about it now but it does still fit neatly within his over like even if and i don't think anyone would argue this even if it does lack some of the satirical bite of his other films it does still feel like a paul verhoven movie at, at times from the dialogue to certain shots i mean yeah it's got there's his hands a rape. All- yeah there's a rape yeah <laughs> uh, but i mean it's got his hands all over it speaking of rape <laughs> sorry <laughs> that's gonna get cut out <laughs> i'm special guest todd a davis thank you you've been demoted again <laughs> 
just got just, really uncomfortable with his promotion. I'll, I'll just I'll collect my things and be on my way. <laughs> so the script for Hollow Man was written by a guy named Andrew Marlowe, who he uh you know, he's not super well known. I mean, now he's pretty successful. He created the TV show Castle with Nathan Fillion, oh, yeah. uh, which ran for it might still be on, I don't know, but pretty successful and ran for several seasons. But he had uh, he started out as a Hollywood screenwriter and he'd had a big success with Air Force One in 1997. Nice. Uh, it's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, you should. Uh, it's, it's really good. And it made a lot of money. And he followed that up with a movie that didn't make a lot of money uh, that I find absolutely fascinating. It's one of the weirdest films of Arnold Schwarzenegger's career, which is saying something. Uh, that was 1999's End of Days. I watched that. Uh, I watched that for the first time with with, with you guys. With yeah, yeah, with you guys at uh, at Radio Room back when we were doing in person movie screenings. Maybe mm-hmm. we'll get back to that one day. Fingers crossed. Uh, <laughs> Isn't that Gabriel Byrne as the devil? Yeah. 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 yeah Gabriel Byrne. Were you there for that one, Gary? For yeah, I was screen? there for it. I was just trying to think. I was like Gabriel Byrne. I just saw him in something, and I'm trying to remember what I just watched with Gabriel. Hereditary. Byrne. No, I mean he's in that. Usual Suspects. It wasn't usual suspects. Miller's Crossing. Jesus. Should we no. just keep going? <laughs> I mean, we could play some Jeopardy shipwreck. music and I can tell you what shipwrecked. it just was. It was Yeah, you don't know shipwrecked? The one oh. with, uh, wait, no. Or he's what? a pirate? It, he's a it pirate. It was ghost ship. He's That's what it ship. was. I just saw a pirate in that one too. I was close. Yeah. <laughs> I know that, that triggered it in my brain. Burn. It was ghost ship. I just watched ghost ship. You know who else is in that? Also, Carl or Ben. And Why uh, did you watch Ghost Ship? Uh, the wife wanted to watch it. I was like, "Well, I remember the cutting people in half scene, and I'd like to see. I'd like to see everybody that brings that up on lists and stuff." And <laughs> yeah. uh, so I've never like, seen that's it. still like the the great. best part of the movie. The movie's not bad. It's just not good. Not, not, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> somewhere in the middle. Yeah. It's in anyway, the middle of that peanut butter sandwich. The scene where everybody gets cut in half is still pretty wicked, though. <laughs> yeah, just like in 13 Ghosts, where the scene where the horse gets bisected oh, is, yeah. is super rad, but the rest of the movie is sort of garbage. Right. Which was enough. I think those were both those like Sam Raimi ghost house. Why are we talking about this? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what a way to send Paul Verhoeven off. <laughs> talking, talking about Gabriel shit. Byrne. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, back to the script. There's not a lot to say about the script. That's the thing. Like, I wish I could tell you that there's a cool story about the development of the, of the script, like we have with you know Joe Esterhouse or uh, what's his name, uh, Ed Newmeyer. Like, I wish there was a cool story about that. You know, they had this script in them for years. I have no idea where, where this idea from Andrew Marlowe came from. He probably watched The Invisible Man or read H.G. Wells' The Invisible Man and thought he would update it. Uh, for the new the new century and and change it just enough to where he didn't have to pay H.G. Wells' estate to, to adapt it, you know, because uh, it's it's got a lot of similarities, but it's not a, an exact adaptation. It uh, feels it feels very like, oh, let's do a modern telling, and yeah, it, yeah, it feels very much that way. There's just not a cool story about how this script came to be or how Verhoeven got involved. I mean, for all intents and purposes, he was just kind of hired to do a job because here's the thing like after showgirls he did kind of get put in director's jail or he kind of referred to it as a director's work release like he was still allowed to work but he could only really get offered sci-fi projects or things that were sci-fi adjacent so hollow man kind of fit the bill but it's it's work hey it's work and you know and it 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 makes sense that like a guy like verhoven would be approached for a 
a script like this. I mean, yeah. it, I could I could see reading this script and thinking like Paul Verhoeven would do a good job with it. Absolutely. Because he's like, well, I mean, not not yet, but nowadays, every other one of those sci-fi movies has been on point. For the film itself. So actors who were considered for the main role of Dr. Sebastian Kane, who's the uh, the scientist who becomes invisible in this. Actors included Robert Downey Jr., uh, Guy Pierce, and Edward Norton. Downey Jr. was actually cast for a while, and something happened. Scheduling didn't work out or something, but it was actually announced that he was going to star in it for mm-hmm. a while. Uh, but Verhoeven did ultimately choose Kevin Bacon uh, because the director felt that that Bacon had this great ability to be both charming and diabolical. and But also because of his willingness, apparently, to undergo pain. He's like, he's down for anything. I mean, like physical pain or like, yeah, like just a very difficult shoot. Like he was willing uh, to go through some very uncomfortable stuff. So the the way this this day says this was like his most difficult shoot he's ever done. Oh, dude, watching the like behind the scenes on this on the on the Blu-ray, it's it's like that's those he doesn't complain a lot on that. uh, But those those kind of packages that they put together as like a behind the scenes, but it's really just a promo for the film. They're usually there's no warts and all at all. It's all the good stuff. And yeah. Kevin Bacon, even on that, he's like, why am I, why did I do this? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the diary that he wrote about this, uh, which I, I, I can, I'll post a link to, he wrote a diary. It was, I think it was originally an entertainment weekly or something uh, like a two part thing that he kept a diary through the whole shoot. And it's like, it sounded like he was going through hell. I mean, he wow. just, he is complaining the whole time about everything. It's, it was rough, <laughs> but we'll, we'll get into some details on that in a minute. Nice. But back when they, he was first being approached, Ver, Verhoeven and Bacon, they, they had a meeting, like a lunch meeting. This is March, 1999. And Kevin Bacon's goal for this meeting was simple. He wanted, he wanted the job and he wanted to know what Verhoeven's vision for the character was. Verhoeven's agenda was a little bit different. He apparently spent about five minutes talking about the character and then spent the next 55 minutes talking about the suffering that the role would entail. And he wanted to know if Kevin Bacon could handle it. Verhoeven basically explained to Bacon, he's like, this shoot is going to be technically very arduous. Uh, it's going to be very uncomfortable There's because they're, they're going to attempt special effects that have never been done before. But Kevin Bacon, who had, you know, he braved the Whitewater Rapids on the River Wild where he has to wear, a, he's wearing like a, a a wetsuit under it the whole time. Uh, he'd mm. been suspended in zero gravity in in Apollo 13. I don't know if you guys remember how I they did those, about those scenes in Apollo 13 where they took the, the airplane up and then dipped it to where they're actually floating in the air. Yeah. Uh, he's like, yeah, man, I've, I've done some wild shit in my career already. I can handle this. He handled the truth and a few good men. Yeah, he got a, <laughs> he got a, uh, he got an, uh, an arrow put through his neck in Friday the 13th. That's commitment. Fault giant worms for reals. He got yeah. a coin, a coin put through his head in X Men First Class. Well, that was that, that had not happened yet. That had not happened yet. I was trying to go along with the thing. You could have. My next one would have been he whipped his dick out for wild things. Yeah, that had just happened. Yeah, so he's done that at least. But any so he he said that basically, yeah, I can handle this, Paul. Come on, I've done I've done worse than this, uh, but he honestly did not know what he was getting into or what he was signing up for when he said that. And we'll get more into that in, in a minute. But I, you got to hand it to Verhoeven a little bit for at least putting it on Front Street. And it sounds like he's kind of done that with a couple of different of a couple different projects, yeah, at least I mean, like we, Showgirls and some and other things instinct. of like, hey, just so you know, 
here's what you're signing up for. And yeah. I feel like that might even be more than you would get on most Hollywood productions. Yeah. I mean, we talked about that a lot in basic instinct where he was very open about, Hey, this is what's happening. There's going to be a lot of nudity. You're going to do what I say. If you're not comfortable with that, you need to walk away. So he's, yeah. he seems to be very upfront with his, his actors on what's ex- expected of them. Yeah. That's a good way to go. Yeah. I mean, it's better than just springing it on them, you know, for sure. <laughs> So nearly $50 million of the film's $95 million budget was reserved for special effects work. That's over half the budget on this is just for special effects, with about two-thirds of the effects being done by Sony Pictures Image Works, and then the remainder being done by Tippett Studio, Phil Tippett's company. Uh, As usual with Verhoeven's films, the effects were state-of-the-art. So he had originally thought, when he signed up for this, he's like, this is going to be easy. Hollow Man's going to be simple. Most of the difficult effects, or he, he thought the actual shoot, I should say, the shoot itself, the physical shoot was going to be simple. Because he's like, most of the difficult effects works will just be in post-production. Uh, just like the bugs on Starship Troopers, the Invisible Man effects would just be digitally added later. And it was actually, at first it was assumed that Kevin Bacon wouldn't have to be on set, except for the like 30% of the time when his character is actually visible and the rest of it would just be like voice work. But Verhoeven soon realized that without Bacon on set to interact both physically and psychologically with the other actors, the scenes would kind of end up looking stiff and inorganic and unconvincing. And they, they just were not going to live up to Verhoeven's expectations. So the decision was made to have Kevin Bacon on the set at all times, even in scenes where his character would later be made to be invisible. Like they still wanted him there. Yeah, fully nude. Yeah, entirely nude the whole time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When there are physical interactions between characters, it looks real because we really did it. When Sebastian is grabbing someone's clothes or pushing them around, they react realistically because Kevin is really doing it. He's so excited about that. <laughs> and, and he's right, though. But this technique works very well for the film. And I don't think the special effects would look as good had they not done this way. But it also meant that instead of adding an invisible Kevin Bacon to the scenes or, or things that he's manipulating, they had to have him, he was on camera and they had to digitally remove him, Oof. which of course left holes to be filled with backgrounds that should be visible. So to achieve this, each scene had to be filmed twice, uh, once with the actors and then again without them to get the backgrounds to see through Kevin Bacon's character. So they would basically take make two passes of each scene using a motion control camera. We talked a lot about that, I think, with Starship Troopers last week. So they'd use a motion control camera so that the camera movements would be exactly alike each time, and then the shots were just digitally composited. It's kind of sounds simple. I mean, if the technology didn't exist, you know, it wouldn't be possible. But, you know, that that's... A pretty simple explanation for how they're going to do this, but but very and, difficult to pull off in person. But the end product actually looks pretty good. It's pretty it seamless. Fucking great. Yeah. Outstanding. Oh, they nailed it. And Kevin Bacon, yeah, he, he actually says in like one of those interviews where he's just like, yeah, you, you read this scroll and you think you're, well, I'm not going to have to do that much, really. And uh, yeah, he's like, no, he's like, I think I've actually doubled less on this movie than any movie I've ever been on in my life. Yeah. So this is where we kind of get back to Verhoeven's comments to Bacon about how difficult the part was going to be. We're going to rewind back before shooting began when they were in pre-production. Kevin Bacon, who lives in New York City, by the way, they're shooting this in Los Angeles. Uh, He had to fly from his home in LA, uh, his home in New York to LA to be prepped for special effects. This is weeks before the shoot began. 
So in that diary that I mentioned that he kept during the filming of Hollow Man, he says that he received a fax memo that said 1999. Fax fax memos were still a thing. (laughs) He said that he'd be needed for a full, this is a quote, a full body casting, head casting, feet and arm casting, teeth casting, and then dinner with Paul. (laughs) <laughs> and then the next day's schedule that's like on a wednesday right then on thursday the next day schedule said that he was expected to be nude for a full body cyber scan and he's like what the fuck is that what the fuck is a full body cyber scan so what that is is pretty much exactly what it sounds like it required kevin bacon to stand perfectly still completely nude while every inch of his body is scanned into a computer by lasers i mean like incredibly detailed like down to the thickness of his fingernails uh to how his mouth would look when he smiled like they're they've got him doing all these different poses and different facial features like they're scanning every possible movement of kevin bacon's body into a computer and they and then they used all this information to create a digital clone basically a three-dimensional model in the computer of the actor this and called Kevin Bacon's consciousness will be transferred to it. Yeah, a lawnmower when, man style. Yeah, when he dies, <laughs> like he'll, he'll go there. And they, they did actually run across a small problem when they were doing uh, the scan. So the scanner, they, they told Kevin Bacon, they're like, like, the scanner won't pick up any dark areas on you. So they had to like, they had to put a white bald cap over him because his hair wouldn't be picked up mm-hmm. by the scanners. And they had to paint his eyebrows white. So, so they would scan him without an issue. So they started scanning and they got to a certain part with, and, and they, they're like, the computer can't get enough information from you on this. And this happened to be while the scanner was looking straight up at Bacon from below. Uh, I call it the taint cam. Uh, <laughs> I was going to ask, but I was like, I've already been demoted once today. <laughs> so, the, so the cameras below him, the camera, the lasers are below him trying to scan this taint. They got to get all that information in there. <laughs> and it's, the problem, it's so dark there. there it's, it's the that's exactly what it was. His <laughs> pubes were too dark for the computer to scan them. So they had to paint his pubes white Perfect. in order to get, in order to get, I mean, Hey, that show business, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the paint, he he could have shaved, you know, people could have shaved and he stuff. He could have. Yeah. <laughs> That honestly would have been probably, I mean, I don't know what kind of paint they used, I guess, Uh, you know. Or just done a bunch of poses where like his legs like up in the air. (laughs) (laughs) I love for the viewers at home, you can't see Todd actually trying to do the poses. Yeah, he's doing (laughs) yoga over here. (laughs) But you see, the reason they're going to all this trouble, though, is because Verhoeven wanted Bacon's presence in the film to be obvious, despite the character's invisibility. So this involved, you know, in the movie, in the final film, this involved Sebastian being really creepily outlined in various substances like smoke and water and blood uh, almost give it like a ghost like quality i think mm. and it is still very cool like those footprints as he's walking through the blood you're just yeah. like, man they did a good job with that <laughs> it's great the, the effects in this are like really outstanding for a movie that's over 20 years old now mm. so to pull this off on on set kevin bacon had to wear a latex bodysuit a full face mask, face painted, contact lenses, colored contact lenses, and a dental plate. They were all the same color. And the color would vary based on what substance Sebastian would be outlined in. So like if he's outlined in blood, the bodysuit's green. If it's smoke, then it's a blue bodysuit. If it's water, then it's a black bodysuit. Uh, just because of the way that they, 
it would only work certain ways with certain substances. So, and, and when I say that, like he's completely covered, you you can look up images of him on the set, and it's like his face is green. He's got a green ball cap. He's got a green bodysuit, green gloves, and he's got contact lenses that are the same color green that are like the big contact lenses, you know, that cover most of your eye. And yeah. he's got dental plate over his teeth so that his teeth don't show and they're green. So it's, he looks goofy as hell, <laughs> especially in the green one. The black one looks kind of creepy, honestly, because he's got like those big old West Borland eyeball things. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he looks like the thing from insidious almost or something. Like <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really weird. Uh-huh. Uh, but Hey, you know, that that's how they had to do it to pull it off. So he's very uncomfortable physically, but it does give the actors a chance to, they've got somebody to work off of, you know? Mm-hmm. So they've got him dressed up on set like this. And then visual supervisor, Craig Hayes, who we discussed last week on Starship Troopers. He worked on Robocop as well. Uh, he was the, the head of the visual department on this, uh, the visual effects supervisor. So he would replace Kevin Bacon with that digital clone, so that we would see, uh, you know, for example, pool water or raindrops form an outline around them. Mm-hmm. So they're taking Kevin Bacon out of it digitally and replacing him with the digital clone. So Kevin Bacon's really only there to to talk to the other actors, mostly. You know, I mean, there are scenes like, you know, the scene where Josh Brolin's sticking the things on his face. Like Kevin yeah. Bacon was there for that. And then they erased him digitally. And then, you know, of course, when you see them just floating there, they're they're computer generated, but yeah, it, it works really well. It I think. looked really good. I hadn't seen this. I hadn't seen this since theaters and uh, special effects wise, man, it's a pretty <laughs> incredible feat. I mean, yeah, for the time, awesome. like what they're doing here is, is kind of unheard of. And, but this isn't it. I mean, we're, we're not done. Verhoeven had yet more to demand of his FX crew. See when, when he, he wanted, when Sebastian disappeared, he wanted him to not disappear all at once, but in stages. He wanted the skin to go first, followed by the muscles, the lung, the heart, the skeleton gradually disappearing. A, a little prior to, to filming Hollow Man, Verhoeven's daughter, Helen, uh, who's an artist, she had recently visited this place called the uh, Musea della Specola. It's an, an anatomy museum in Florence, Italy. Uh, it's a natural history museum. History dates back to like the 1700s. And it was there that she saw this collection of anatomical waxes, uh, which is something that the museum is particularly known for. It was this, it was kind of an art form that was developed in Florence in the 17th century, basically for the purpose of teaching medicine. They had to recreate these perfectly anatomically correct bodies where you can see, you know, they're, they're basically wax replicas of human corpses with their internal organs visible. This is like how they taught surgery and things like that, or with these these wax figures. And they became famous because of their like incredible detail. So she, so Verhoeven's daughter visited this museum and then she brings back some illustrated books on the subjects to give to her father. And he was kind of inspired by these. Like he, you know, he wanted to see this on screen. So he asked special effects supervisor, Scott Anderson to create a three-dimensional digital model of the inside of Kevin Bacon's body with all of his organs working and muscles flexing just like they would in real life. So they had to do all this research on how musculature and organs would move if you were to be able to see them without all this pesky skin being in the way. Wow. It's really a cool concept, but it's it's like you get kind of that feel for like Verhoeven caring about like these details or his uh, 
you know, his mind for science and that sort of thing. So it's just interesting. Um, I, I like the eyelid thing. Like I, I would have never thought of would that. Would have never thought it, of that. That was it, so fascinating. Cause I don't recall that ever being mentioned in, and I could be wrong, but I don't recall that ever being mentioned in another invisible man movie. Was that when, was there mention of something like that? Like in the Claude Rains invisible man movie. I don't I think feel like so. I might've read that it was in the original book in the book. But, okay. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't recall anything like that. Even in granted, we don't see a lot from his point of view, but in the uh, Lee Wanell invisible man from last year, but again, we, we don't, we're mostly with, with his victim and that not with him. So who knows? well, and I was going to say, even with Lee Wanell's version, he kind of covers it. it you know, they, they skip, their science goes more towards the technology itself, right. like the suit that he's wearing the, as opposed yeah, to covering like, it. So yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So that, that wouldn't be an issue because his eyelids still are visible underneath the suit. Yeah. Right. So be, this model, this digital model, it includes multiple layers of innards moving on top of each other. So to animate this, this is like 20 times more complex than mo most things that had been computer animated at this time, like say the, the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, where only the outer surfaces were visible. They were having to, uh, you know, they were having to animate the muscles and underneath that, the organs and underneath that, the, the skeleton, like everything, the blood vessels, like everything had to be animated on top of each other. And it's, it's an insane amount of work to do that. So to pull it off, they actually had to develop special volume rendering software that used enormous amounts of computer memory. They had to in, essentially in, in, invent an entirely new technology to be able to hold all of this digital information to create this. Well, this is, and, and keep in mind, this is like, this is Windows 95 time. This is not, this is not, you right, know, this is not when we're all walking around with a supercomputer in our pocket. Right, right. So these, these guys are working on some shit Windows we couldn't even stand I mean, technically. Right what I was going to say, was Windows 2000 even out yet? I, don't I mean, know. in 2000. But yeah, I mean, but not when, when the movie was, this was, movie was Not made. when the movie was being made in 99. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was on the cusp, though, yeah. you know? You almost had that big breakthrough <laughs> in science. But <laughs> <laughs> so when Verhoeven was asked why he was so insistent on having anatomically correct, fully functioning innards for the scene where Sebastian is phasing from visible to invisible, here's what he had to say. I feel that if I made it really realistic, they would have to accept invisibility. I thought if I made the transitions as good as possible and you could really see all of the veins that are there, then I could sell the bluff better. Yeah, so what do you, I mean, I, I like that. I, I like that thinking. He's like, if I make this realistic, like make the science feel like it could exist, then people are going to believe that a man can become invisible. Yeah. You know? And it, even if you're even if you're cynical of like, oh, it's digital, well, these digital effects look great, but it's digital. I think they really sell it with everybody else in the room because you've got yeah, these characters are. Uh, yeah. First of all, their reactions, but also the dialogue like it's hey, they're monitoring vitals and it's all the jargon that they've got in there so, is solid and holds up. And it looks super cool, man. It, like yeah. Yeah, that early does. scene where they um, where they're they're bringing the gorilla back mm. where they're phasing it back into, into visibility. Like mm -hmm. it is, it's intense for one thing. Cause they have the issue where the heart starts like pumping, you know, and they think it's going to have a heart attack. And then the way it like looks when it gradually comes back is, is really impressive. The gorilla, by the way, that gorilla was a suit when, when you can see the actual gorilla, 
It's a guy in a suit, animatronic suit. It's a pretty cool looking suit. Yeah. Uh, very well done for something you barely see on screen because uh, he's invisible for most of the time. But uh, what they had to do, so the, the scenes where you can see the infrared, they, like the camera pans up to the infrared monitor and you see the gorilla on screen with, I think it's with Josh Brolin's character. Uh, the way that they had to do that, because this is not a real gorilla, so it has no body heat. It's a guy inside of a suit. The suit is not warm enough. So they had to like blow it down with hair dryers and, and stuff, like set it in front of heaters and blow it down with ha- like hair dryers to get the heat on the outside of the suit right before shooting. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how they pulled that off. I Jeez. figured they would have just faked a real gorilla. So that's weird. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Or, it's uh, or like had a real gorilla for that part. You know, I don't think they probably wanted to put Josh Brolin in a cage with a real gorilla. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. That part. I forgot about that part. I was just thinking like when it's sitting in the cage, just in general. Yeah. No, no. He has to interact with it. <laughs> I saw so they that- got called on the dog stuff. Like they had to, they had to show, uh, animal not animal control but uh they had to prove that it, that kevin bacon didn't really slam a dog into a, <laughs> yeah, they had to show it. so they had like behind the scenes footage or something where like kevin bacon takes the dog out and hands it to a vet and like takes a dummy back and starts slamming it around by the way my household wife was not a fan no I did not remember that scene and we didn't look it up ahead of time and it's i got the big gary what <laughs> it's pretty shocking it really is yeah. I mean, you never see the dog, though. Yeah, yeah, you never actually There's see that. the dog, but it's just like, it's 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 kind of fucked up. <laughs> it's very fucked up, but oh, I yeah. mean, he's an insane person at this point, and so it, you know, it makes sense for him to be doing something kind of fucked up. Yeah. If I was being really nitpicky going back to the effects, I mean, there there was a couple of times where I thought, like, I wonder if they could have done some of this practical. I think it was mainly when Kevin Bacon was going under that, like, the skeleton and stuff. Like, I thought, like, oh, man, I wonder if you could have, like... Some of the stuff we've seen recently with like puppetry and that sort of thing, like I'm wondering if they could have done it because digital just, you know, it, that's the that's always the problem. It's like the aging of it. But yeah. but I will say that's that's being nitpicky because Todd said it well, I think that everybody plays it off really, really well. It never took me out of the movie. It's just something I noticed. And uh, it, it, it just I don't know, it, it, especially from their scenes where they're up in the control room looking down on it happening. Those are flawless. Like it looks perfect. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's really good. Yeah. But and especially, I mean, and, and I mean, we talked about the details within the body, but the detail of like the skeleton sitting there, but you can see where the mattress is indented the from, yeah. for, for the entire leg and, and, yeah. but you know, and th- those little details, man, woof, just sell it. And it does sound like this was a pretty difficult shoot, especially for Kevin Bacon, who was miserable, it seems, most days on set. I mean, he, again, he's in this very uncomfortable suit or or in scenes where he's wearing the mask, you know, where they pour the rubber stuff over his face. It's it, he, he described it as being really stinky. Uh, like he walked, he, he describes walking into the makeup trailer and he walks in, he's like, oh God, what does that smell? And it turns out to be the mask that he was going to have to wear every day for the next Shit. several weeks. Oh, uh, they, this like horrible smell of this latex. So he had to wear that uh, and he can't breathe out of it. Oh, uh, he can't breathe because the nose holes, they don't cut out. You notice Elizabeth's shoe cuts out the eyes uh-huh. uh, and the mouth, but she doesn't cut out the nostril. So in those scenes, 
And it seems like I even saw somebody, maybe on Letterboxd or somewhere in a review, they were remarking about the attention to detail that Verhoeven had in having Kevin Bacon talk like he was a little stuffed up in those scenes because his, no, his nose is clogged. Mm-hmm. No, was, Kevin Bacon was unable to breathe out of his nose in those scenes. It wasn't like Paul Verhoeven going, this would be a great detail. No, Kevin Bacon did sound stuffed up because that's actually what he sounded like. <laughs> and because- that, that sucks because I've been dealing with allergies really bad this season. And uh, and it's allergies, not COVID, as far as I know. But when I was in St. Louis, it wasn't happening. And every time when I right as soon as I got off the plane here in in South Carolina, it picked back up that I've been having to use Afrin and shit to clear my nose. Anyway, when your nose gets stuffed up, God help me, I just want to like throw myself out a window. It just sucks. (laughs) Anyway, on top of all of that, he got paid millions of dollars for it. Yeah, and Kevin Bacon's a dickhead. So no, he seems kind of. Nice. He seems like a nice guy. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it just feels like one of those things. Remember all like Doug loves movies. Doug Doug would always say like, uh, and as always, Willem Dafoe is a shithead. <laughs> and it was just because it's like one of those things you never think nobody's ever said before. <laughs> it's just like. Yeah, Kevin, Kevin Bacon, Bacon just seems like actually, he's a good. He seems like a cool guy. I don't yeah, know. he's been married to the, uh, what's her name, Kira Sedgwick, for like thirty years. Like the you closer. Know. Yeah, yes, the closer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, anyway, he's miserable the whole time. Pretty positive, he's, he's, right there. He's either wearing this stinky rubber suit or a full body suit with these uncomfortable contact lenses. But he is doing this all while being three thousand miles from his wife and kids for six months. You know, which he he did not want to do, and he didn't normally do shoots that long for that reason. He's also trying to make an album with his band, the Bacon Brothers. Uh, do you know Kevin Bacon's in a band? I did. They performed here in Greenville, South Carolina. They sure them. have. Yep, they have. <laughs> awesome. Him and his brother. They're you know they're fine. They're they're not bad. Uh, yeah. It's kind of bluesy <laughs> stuff. You know, they're fun. But yeah, they were in the middle of recording an album, so he had to put that on hold. I don't. I don't know if you on hold. I don't know if you read the whole diary, but I, I didn't get I did, to read yep. it all. But didn't his like kid get sick at some point in there too or something like that like there was... i don't recall that but that might have been part of it i did read the whole thing but i don't remember that so to make matters worse a few weeks into the shoot elizabeth shoe who we haven't really mentioned much of the rest of the cast but she plays linda mckay the, who is what i would consider the film's hero uh she tore her achilles tendon uh, she did this uh... during a lunch break on set she was doing some gymnastics i guess she was a gymnast for decades like since she was a kid, she was a gymnast. So she would do this for like, I guess, exercise, you know, like her daily exercise. And she tore her Achilles tendon and it caused the entire production to shut down for six weeks. So now what was supposed to be a six month shoot, Kevin Bacon's having to be away from his wife for six months, has now turned into an eight month shoot. Ugh. Yeah, it's because they had to shut down for almost two full months. Damn. But they got it done. They made the movie, they finished it, they finished all the special effects and everything, and then when the film was released at the end of the summer of the year 2000, it received almost entirely negative reviews from critics. (laughs) So all of this hard work, all of this heartache from Kevin Bacon, you know, Elizabeth Shue going to the hospital, Kevin Bacon having to wear a stinky mask and not seeing his wife for eight months, and then, then everyone fucking hated the movie. That's the thing, man. That's the thing. That's why I don't like to shit on movies too much, even when they're bad. I mean, I, you know, I will acknowledge a movie that's bad, but it's like, man, a lot of people worked really hard on this and this is not entirely their fault. Yeah. Like this is anything that it will get into our thoughts, I think on this movie. Uh, But despite what you say about this movie, Kevin Bacon's good in it. 
uh, the special effects are, I think the whole cast is good and everyone's good in it. The special effects are groundbreaking. And I mean, just outstanding, yeah. even to this day, 21 years later, I think they're incredible. So this was people's lives for eight months, you know, yeah. and they worked very hard to make something good and it didn't turn out good. Uh, at least to a lot of people, I actually don't hate this movie, but, uh, but a lot of people did when it came out and it got shit on a lot. Mm. So, uh, that brings me to our, our weekly question, Gary. Are people still shitting on this movie uh, here in the modern era, in the 21st century? Uh, what are people's thoughts on the internet of Hollow Man? Well, as you can imagine, whether or not they've seen the movie, people have an opinion. Um, no, no, it's a, <laughs> I was trying to think of a clever pun, pun honestly, with I'm, invisibility. I'm the only one that comments on a movie without having seen it. So. Oh, <laughs> You're perfect. the only one? Yeah. That's, that's my role. Yeah. Well, as always, you know, somebody needs a nap. Uh, let's see. Here's uh, Shada. She says, uh, the only thing this film had to offer were a few special effects. Beyond that, it's one of the most unethical and tasteless pieces of crap I've ever seen. Take it from somebody who thought Apocalypse Now was great. Me, incidentally. All of this, all this film does is glorify violence, rape, and poor taste. It's awful. I see a lot of movies with violence, but none done so tastelessly and casually as to outright offend me. I might add that everything else about the movie was just terrible as well. I'm saying this film is so bad, I will never watch another Kevin Bacon or Paul Verhoeven movie again. Jeez. Why does she, first of all, why does she bring up Apocalypse Now? Like, Take it from me as someone who likes Apocalypse Now, but my opinion matters more. Everyone fucking likes Apocalypse Now. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that, that does not make you special or better at watching movies because you like Apocalypse Now. It's literally it's one considered those... one of the greatest movies ever made. She's just trying to establish, like, I've seen some shit, man. I've seen good movies. <laughs> I know what a good movie is. Uh, this, this is from a person named Cujo, but it's like, c-u-j-o-e it's like cujo oh, clever i like it this waste of film is a totally hacked piece of junk with glossy special effects and boobs that's it hard to believe that paul verhoeven has made a film worse than showgirls and smears our faces into two hours of it what could have been an interesting film turns into a two-hour game of hide and seek with the occasional boob <laughs> not even worth one dollar 10-day rental at video land Oh my God, this movie was horrid. Two hours of poor acting, a lame story, and boobs, 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 and more boobs. Over, avoid this over budgeted poop art at all costs. Not even that many boobs in this. I, it's yeah, really not. not that, this yeah, is not pretty calm much. on the boob scale for a Ver Verhoeven movie. You get Kim Dickens' boob when he unbuttons her sweater, and of course, the, the neighbor. And that's really it. That's really the only boobs. Yeah. There's uh, Murphy who says, Oh, Murphy. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe that's clever. Uh, <laughs> Paul Verhoeven never fails to make me wonder how bad movies can be. First Total Recall, then RoboCop, out of order, Murphy. And now this, get a fucking hobby, Paul. That's what zero pussy does to a motherfucker. <laughs> that seems unnecessarily personal. <laughs> <laughs> Jarrett says, what a screenplay. Frank, over the intercom, this is God. You are disturbing the natural order of things and will be severely punished for all eternity. God has spoken. Sebastian, how many times do I have to tell you, Frank? You're not God. I am. Matt, can I ask you a question? Linda, is it about who's going to be on top? 
Oh, and let's add in the bad Tarantino bit with the superhero sex joke. Agony. Just overrun with the 2000 era ensemble of sassy characters. You don't give a shit if they live or die. Where the most engaging character is the rapist mad scientist. Who is responsible? Scriptwriter Andrew Barlow is. The, that man who brought us Air Force One at end of days. And then often up writing endless episodes of Castle. Okay, the movie kind of almost had me back when they pour the prosthetic face and you get the creepiest looking thing in the world, but then everyone is smiles and sunshine to it. Oh yeah, and 90s shit music abounds. And that finale from the burning bacon alive to the explosion of the lab elevator shaft, one of the worst. Olivia says this is horny white man garbage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Maddie is my last one here. She says... Maddie just says the plot is lackluster, but mainly this movie is so bad because it's incredibly sexist and rapey. Worse still, it romanticizes rape, which is unacceptable. The one star is re reserved solely for the visual effects team who did a really fabulous job and deserved better than this writing. Uh, how and, she thinks it's romanticizing rape in any way whatsoever. It I is thought the same thing. That's why I added <laughs> it in here. J. Matthew Lucas says, man, what an absolute wet shit for, of a movie for Paul Verhoeven's American career to go out on. I mean, the one thing people liked about this film when it came out, the special effects, look terrible today. You could barely do this now, and back then it looks completely stupid. Also, I realized Paul Verhoeven wanted to be slightly more commercial after Starship Troopers, but was Rapey Invisible Man really the best he could come up with? I like Verhoeven a lot. I believe a lot of his movies are indeed misunderstood, at least on a mainstream level. At the very least, I agree, Showgirls is brilliant. But this, this is literal trash. And not just because it's a bland, boring, flat, forgettable, formulaic, studio slasher tripe. The whole movie is from the POV of a rapist, basically, which is an interesting concept to entertain. But one, it goes nowhere. And two, it's only adding to a dead movie. Just file this away in the garbage. Nobody ever needs to hear about it again. Also, features the worst dog murder I've ever seen on screen. Also, the effects suck ass. These people are really harsh on the effects. <laughs> yeah, hey, um, and Because I think the effects have aged incredibly well. And the thing is, these, these people are a lot of them are talking about this like it is just the worst movie ever made and the thing is hollow man is fine like it's not horrible i don't think it's horrible um it's not great i'm never i'm i'm not going to say that this is a movie that should be reevaluated in the ways that showgirls or starship troopers have been i can't make that argument there's no underlying like clever satire here not so no. fast justin I I think that this movie is actually a lot more clever than people give it credit for. Or or at least or at least Paul Verhoeven is still as clever as he ever was when he was making this movie. It yeah. is it is the case of a so so I'm not disagreeing with you completely. It, it is the case that he is bending to the will of the studio clearly. You know yeah. that just strictly because the fucking thing came out and got an R rating immediately instead of NC-17 and required him to adjust some things. So, yeah. like, you know, he's already just like, all right, well, I'll just I'll work with you guys a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but I, I think that there, there are things in this movie that reevaluate. Like, these people are shitting all over this movie. And, and, and sure, the dialogue is not like some brilliant piece of writing. But at the same time, this is also a movie that's kind of playing up the Invisible Man. So it's kind of doing this 50s sci-fi 
thing you know yeah. like i think in a way so i think he's not trying to write like brilliant dialogue but i do think he's attempting to slip some stuff in there that you know people aren't giving him credit for like i i found an interview with him from or no it was in some production notes i found and uh he talks about uh plato <laughs> the mm-hmm. freaking thing yeah. he he references like uh, T.S. Eliot, the Holloman poem, and he references Plato. And an exact quote from me says, he goes, uh, he, talking about Plato, shed an invisible person would become intoxicated with power and abuse it simply because he could get away with it. He would steal it. He would enter homes and rape and kill at will. Plato suggested there is no universal moral code inside us that leads us to being good and just. I, I think what he, what he's, you know, I think he wanted to play with that. Yeah. I think prophetic is uh, his treatment of Kevin Bacon's character in general, be it like a Silicon Valley guy who's just like overrun with power and ethics are out the window mm-hmm. and that he's going to do whatever it takes to, to make this thing happen. And I, I know that that sounds possibly crazy. Like, Oh, he's just a mad scientist. But, but given where we're at now, like that seems like kind of visionary from, Verhoeven for me and also considering the state of things when like a Weinstein comes around yeah and you've got Kevin Bacon who's clearly from the beginning a fucking perv and a douchebag and everybody around him lets it slide like they're all cool with it none of these people even Elizabeth Shue like flirts with him like maybe because she's just like well he's my crazy guy you know and she like kind of flirts with him and fucks around and nobody's taking him that seriously they're like oh that's just sebastian you know yeah yeah. meanwhile he's the guy who like when he realizes nobody's gonna believe you anyway i'll fucking rape you yeah (laughs) it's it's, he's he's a man in power i found all of that for some reason that all stood out to me in this yeah it it did that that stood out to me as well and i actually found that same reference to plato that you mentioned um it it, specifically it's uh, plato's republic uh, and I actually have a quote. So basically, the moral quandary that, that Verhoeven is posing here is, what would someone do if they could do anything they wanted without being seen and without facing the repercussions? So in Plato's Republic, this is actually a quote from, from that work by Plato. It says, no man would keep his hands off of what was not his own when he could safely take what he liked out of the market or go into houses and lie with anyone at his pleasure or kill or release from prison whom he would, and in all respects, be a god among men. So Plato's saying like, hey, if somebody had the power to be invisible, to be invisible they would see themselves as a god. The thing is, Sebastian Cain already sees himself as a god. He's, he says he it sort of literally says it. He literally says it. And it's kind of a joke, but he kind of means it, you know? Right. Uh, in Plato's writing, the moral quandary is whether a good man would be corrupted by such powers because no one is inherently 100% good. In Hollow Man, Sebastian starts off as an asshole and only gets worse. Like, Sebastian King is this ego-driven alpha male he drives a porsche he spies on his neighbor he has little regard for his animal test subjects he just throws them away like trash he's not a good dude uh to begin with but becoming invisible allows him to get away with all the other things that he might want to do but is unable to do before just like before he sneaks into his neighbor's apartment he says ah who's gonna know 
you know, like yeah, he's I, a, he's not a good dude. No. And and it feels that way all around the movie. Like I I don't think it's a mistake that that he had that like literally the only person. I mean, I guess you could kind of give it to Josh Brolin, but the main person with a moral compass is like the zoologist or whatever. Like it's, yeah. it's her. Like she's the only person who seems to have like some kind of ethics about her. These other people just like play around. It's 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 exactly how you'd imagine the Harvey Weinstein things ha- happens, yeah. you know, like this guy's a genius and he has a lot of power and a lot of money. He does what he wants to do. And yeah, he's kind of a creeper, but you know, he's harmless. Like but he's also just, a genius and you know, yeah. like it's just so. his way, you know, you just got to deal with it. And it's just like, and that's how Sebastian comes across. And yeah. then the second that he realizes he's invisible consequences are no longer an issue he immediately jumps right into like he immediately like rips over the zoologist shirt and yeah fills her up and like he's he's just and i know that people have a hard time with that part of it which i get it but i think that that's for the exact reason that so many people are pissed off about the rapey stuff in the reviews i think that that's the thing verhoven knows like really triggers people quickly yeah and he's not doing it just to be like just to get a rise out of people to be like controversial he's doing it because it's it's a major part of who that character is and he's trying to say something with it yeah yeah yeah. i mean the guy is a creeper from the beginning he's already voyeuristic like peeking over at his neighbor and stuff so this is not like a new thing that just pops up once he becomes invisible which some reviews intended to act like no the guy's already tried to check her out and watch her get naked uh already i mean already kind of weird pose the idea that the serum does increase aggression which i do think the movie shows but right. it's increasing aggression in a guy who's already a, a bad dude well maybe it's like uh it's removing a lot of uh your inhibitions yeah uh, but yeah. but yeah he i mean he gets really violent so that's that's part of it too you know this um, this guy is this guy is red skull not steve rogers yeah 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 he gets he gets the formula and it just enhanced what what was already there yes so despite the poor reviews on the film it did end up debuting at the top spot of the box office its opening weekend and eventually went on to gross over 190 million dollars worldwide which made it verhoven's biggest commercial hit in nearly a decade and it did get its own direct-to-video sequel in 2006 which has christian uh, slater in it uh but is otherwise it's pretty non-related for it seems like but despite the film's success verhoven didn't feel artistically fulfilled by it uh here's what he had to say i decided after hollow man this is a movie the first movie that i had made i thought i should not have made it made money and this and that but it really is not me anymore i think many other people could have done that i don't think many people would have made robocop that way or starship troopers but hollow man i thought there might have been 20 directors in hollywood who could have done that i felt depressed with myself after 2002 yeah and in a later interview uh from around 2012 i think it was he said he's like i can i can defend showgirls i can't do that with hollow man like he just kind of dismisses it and i personally think that he's kind of selling himself short uh, I mean, Hollow Man, I, I'm not going to pretend that it starts to compare with his previous work in Hollywood. This movie is not on the level of RoboCop or Starship Troopers or or even Total Recall. But I do think Verhoeven brings something to the table 
despite what he says that other directors might not have. And that is namely a, a healthy bit of perversion and a kind of mean streak that I don't think a lot of other directors would have had the balls to put in there. Uh, something like the rape scene, which is the most probably infamous scene in the film. It's not just done there to be exploitative. Uh, yes. I mean, this is, it's one in a long line of rapes to appear in Verhoeven's movies. Uh, but at least this time we don't actually see the assault. Uh, we don't see it, uh, which it wasn't necessarily restraint on Verhoeven's part. He thought it would look silly to see a woman being raped by an invisible person, which he's, that <laughs> he's right. It probably would. Uh, and while it is, you know, it is a mean kind of nasty turn of events. It does fall in line with the themes of the film and specifically with Kevin Bacon's character, I think. It, but he's the invisible man. And in that joke, the invisible man gets raped by Superman. Is he really telling us he hopes he gets raped as well? <laughs> I, I, I don't know how to answer that question without it being the wrong answer. <laughs> uh, no, I'm with you, man. I think, I think Verhoeven is selling himself short. Look, I don't think this is Verhoeven's best movie by any stretch of the imagination, but especially if you want to talk about uh, uh, sci-fi movies, uh, if this is your fourth best, out of RoboCop and Total Recall as Starship Troopers. I mean, still come the fuck on. Like this is right. pretty. It's you're you're okay. Yeah. Yeah. So throughout the movie, the audience is asked to identify with Sebastian. Like he is ostensibly our he's our main character. I would say he's our hero. He's our main character. Uh the care the camera will often sort of a, adopt his point of view, uh, which kind of tempts us as the viewers to be voyeurs along with him. We start, you're watching the movie and you kind of start to wonder what would we do if we had that power? Holloman leads you by the hand and takes you with Sebastian into teasing behavior, naughty behavior, and then really bad and ultimately evil behavior. At what point do you abandon him? I'm thinking when he rapes the woman, that would probably be the moment that people decide this is not my type of hero, though I must say that a lot of viewers follow him further than you would expect. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and that rape scene was shot. It was shot a couple of different ways. Uh, in one version, we see the terrified woman screaming as she's being raped, but test audiences found the scene to be too painful to watch and felt that it alienated them too soon from Sebastian's character. So Verhoeven actually trimmed it down, although he preferred the original version, which saw what he saw as a quote, stronger uh, and harsher version of the character. And it was a scene that was ultimately more relevant to Sebastian Kane as the character has been established in the movie. And ironically, some reviewers actually criticized Verhoeven for making these cuts, saying that he compromised his vision. So when it comes to showing sex and violence on screen, Verhoeven is damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. It's like if he shows it, they shit on him and say that he's showing too much and he's being exploitative. And when they don't, he doesn't show it, they say that he's compromising his artistic vision. Yeah, it's, I mean, I will say that I think that rape is one of those things that like you get more, uh, you can you could get by just fine being more Halloween than Friday the 13th as far as like showing stuff. Right. Uh, you yeah, know, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, yeah. you don't need to rape triggers enough people in enough ways. They but he doesn't, the point. he's being Halloween in this one. Like, no, no, not, I agree. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I mean, when you were saying, I, I was just thinking about how he, he had had another thing and he preferred the other. I'm like, 
I actually would disagree with him here. I, I got, I got the point that he had yeah. raped this woman and she's crying and like this had happened. I didn't need to see anything, anything more, more than what you see. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think that this is Gary, Gary touched on this before, but I think this is once again, Verhoeven proving his prescience. Like we talked about this in multiple episodes so far, but in, in the era of like me too, like you can't help but see parallels with Sebastian Kane and someone like, you know, Gary mentioned Harvey Weinstein. Like you, you have to see those parallels. This like, obviously Weinstein wasn't invisible. He is painfully visible, but he uses his power in Hollywood to get away with his crimes, just like Sebastian Kane is using his power here to get away with crimes. The key there is lack of consequence. Like yeah. they, you know, Harvey Weinstein's just did his power, but you know, with with uh, Sebastian Kane here, like he just nobody will ever know. And they, they think that they're that, untouchable like, because believe you. Like, they think that they're untouchable because of that power. And know? even and even think about like with the. Uh, I forget if she's a vet or a zoologist or whatever, but she's, she's, you know, she gets molested by him. Essentially. She brings it up and everybody kind of dismisses it, dismisses it. They're like, even if that's what happened, that's, you know, that's, he's being a goofy guy or something. There's like right. a, there's a weird way that that's handled that you're kind of like looking back on it. Now you're like, you fucking dicks. Like you're, you know, but in the moment, those people aren't thinking of him being the monster that he is even though all the sides are there i don't know yeah. i i just watching it this time i was like man this movie gets shit on a lot but i think verhoven is actually hitting on a lot of things that people aren't giving him credit for i i absolutely agree with that yeah i do sebastian kane also seems to he sees himself as unable to be touched you know he sees himself as untouchable un like he can't be hurt you know there's literally a scene where he talks about like uh what he, I, I loved it this time. I, I, I feel like I'm like praising this movie overly. Like I'm trying to give it five stars or something. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying like I walked in this movie thinking it was two, and right, that's not the case. And uh, there's even the scene where he, you know, was like looking at himself in the mirror, or he was like, "Where are you?" And he's like, "I'm looking at myself in the mirror and realizing I can't see myself or something." And it's just like yeah. you get that like, what if you can't? What if you don't have to look at yourself in the mirror anymore? Yeah. What's the yeah. Per, what are you gonna do? So before we uh, wrap it up, do you guys have any any further viewing suggestions on this one? Any films that you would pair with Hollow Man? Uh, I think I would maybe pair this with, uh, well, because I like the book, <laughs> League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And you get to see kind of yeah. an updated version of those characters in addition to The Invisible Man, which The Invisible Man in that is kind of similar to this one where and especially if you, if you've read the book where they find the invisible man is in a girl's school where there's been a bunch of immaculate conceptions oh. <laughs> yeah Yikes. so uh yeah so it's kind of interesting to see like this character here in the 2000s versus that character in you know victorian london that would yeah i think that would make a, a fun double feature yeah, except for that movie's really bad. The movie's really bad. I like the book. <laughs> that's that's what I mean. Like, I like the book, but <laughs> man, I don't know. I mean, I would just I, really, I would have to go with uh, uh, the Invisible Man, like just, like the the, the, the new the, one. Yeah, the new one, the like, one just, one. Yeah, yeah, which also deals with some deeper issues, mostly with like domestic abuse and that yeah. sort of stuff. It's a great, great movie. I mean, that would be not my number one pick. I mean, it's it's mm -hmm. the it's the obvious pick. I think, but it is, uh, 
It's pretty dope. It is outstanding. It's really good. It is outstanding. I mean, you could always, of course, watch the original Claude Rains Invisible Man or The Invisible Man Returns or The Invisible Agent or any of those other ones. Or you could just watch Abbott and Casella meet The Invisible Man. And, and there watch you the, go. And watch the best one of all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but nice. that was really uncomfortable when he rapes Abbott. And, yeah, and well, <laughs> while, while Costello watches, it's really it's really odd. It's, uh, it's very disturbing. Uh, it's fun. Not, it's not as good as their first. What was their first one? Uh, where they meet Frankenstein, I think, is the first yeah. one. That one's like the best, but because that's uh, got Frankenstein and the Wolfman and, and Dracula. Dracula. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. It's yeah. tough because this movie, at its core, is one of those like just. I mean, it is a standard mad scientist movie, and he's trying to update it. And and his fatal flaw here is probably that he just didn't lean into it because well he, I mean this is not that's not dissimilar to what he did with like Basic Instinct was him updating the film noir with you know and and uh, Showgirls was him updating the uh, the Busby Berkeley musical and even Starship Troopers is you know granted the thing he references most is Triumph of the Will but still you know he's he is referencing old old movies in all of his movies honestly oh yeah i saw him i saw him mention in a couple of interviews uh you know just like with basic instinct he had mentioned like uh was it vertigo i think or something and mm-hmm. yeah and in this one he had mentioned uh rear window by hitchcock and yeah, he's a big uh, hitchcock guy yeah he should and, be, uh, i think he mentioned de palma uh body double and uh he just like oh, he, he's like body double oh really he, yeah, he liked like the like stalker week, aspect yeah. of it yeah like the, that movie's great yeah, and, and by the way, this movie does. I mean, it, it gives you a little sneak peek, peek ugh, a sneak peek into what it would be like if uh, you let Verhoeven loose on a horror movie, and it's not totally bad. Like he had like a no, the I last mean, the act last, of the movie is a slasher. The so. last act is absolutely a slasher movie. One yeah. of the last half an hour of this movie is a straight up slasher movie, and it's a pretty good one. You know, it's a pretty good slasher movie. Oh, uh, yeah. I, do, I mean, the movie loses some steam in the middle. I think it gets. It's really the first act is really good everything where they're they're working out the you know the the formula and you see the gorilla and you know where he first becomes invisible it loses a little steam when he gets the rubber mask i think mm-hmm. um but it is a creepy mask it is a creepy mask what yeah. it's worth. it is and then it gets i think it ramps back up in the last act when it does turn into a slasher movie and it's got a big you know big hollywood finale with explosions and all the things that are required of that but i don't know it's kind of fun like i think this movie just like Gary said, it's it's by no means Verhoeven's best. Um, it is probably the worst that we've talked about. Although I would probably watch this over Flesh and Blood. I'd rewatch this over I, that. I one. was literally going to say the same thing. Um, I mean, but other than that, I would go with know, this. Yeah. This is low on the list, but it's he's still really good. Now, one one thing this kind of feels like to me when and I felt this watching, especially the stuff where the body transformation, like you know, uh, the the where you can see the muscles and all that, it feels a little bit like cronenberg light it feels like something cronenberg could do but cronenberg would probably do it a little bit better uh because it made me think of seth brundle in the fly mm. uh the way that he after his transformation becomes he becomes, becomes a literal monster uh the, that's the what we should have mentioned we could have mentioned that one well I, I mean i am mentioning it right now okay <laughs> the, uh, the biggest difference is we're still seth, recording <laughs> seth brundle starts off as a as a good dude uh, and then becomes a bad dude. Uh, although he never doesn't ever really become consciously bad. He's he's sort of a tragic monster. But 
Kevin Bacon starts off as an asshole and just becomes a bigger asshole, you know, yeah. not Kevin Bacon himself. He seems genuinely nice. Uh, <laughs> Sebastian Kane, <laughs> I should say. Yeah. I don't want to shit on the good reputation of Kevin Bacon. That's the, that's the thing with those reviews. Like some of them acted like uh, it was the syrup that just drove him crazy or I, I don't know. Like there's, they, they really establish up top that he's not a great dude. He's a very, overconfident man and, he's a dick uh, he's yeah. a dick and he's pervy and he's crazy and it's like okay now now the chains are off too and he's just like all right whatever i want to do i can do and he becomes shitty and there's a whole philosophical discussion to go into on that uh plato thing you know about what you know what what creates your morals and what yeah creates somebody the, can write their uh thesis on that you can quote us on it if you want uh, sure. but if you want yeah. if you want to write your thesis on uh plato's republic and hollow man please do please Go do for it. please send us a link nice. <laughs> <When> you do. <laughs> please thank us in your uh, graduation and all that uh is that something people do do people have graduation speeches are are college graduations like the oscars yeah, I, I'd like to say so. <laughs> I never graduated college, so I don't know. <laughs> I never got that far. <laughs> At the end of the day, all I'm saying is stop acting like Hollow Man is the worst fucking movie you've ever seen because it most certainly is not. It's not it even like not. that bad. It's not like, even a bad movie. Yeah, I wouldn't even say it's a bad movie. I wouldn't call like, it a it's bad a movie. pretty decent movie. And it's, yeah. and it's just like Paul, Paul Verhoeven is solid. Like he is good at everything he's done that I've seen. So yeah, he's I good. mean, you know, props to him too. It's it's kind of sad that he's he's one of those guys that's gonna I don't know. I feel like it, he 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 left at least American cinema feeling kind of dejected and like he, he didn't succeed. Well, I feel like he mostly felt like I don't think that he felt like he didn't succeed. I think he felt like Hollywood had changed to a point where he no longer fit in it where Hollywood had gotten so politically correct and, and so like focused on the business aspect of it over the artistic aspect of it, that a guy like him who has a very specific vision of what he wants his movies to be. And, and what sometimes, which includes some problematic and controversial content that he no longer had a place in Hollywood. I think that's really what he felt like. Cause after this movie, I mean, it would be another six years until he stepped behind the camera again. So, because after his experience on Hollow Man, he retreated back to the Netherlands. Uh, it was there that he reteamed with his, actually, the the Soldier of Orange. Remember the uh, the war movie he made back in uh, like the the seventies. Uh, the guy who wrote that, his name was Gerard Soderman. Uh, they reteamed together on a project that they had actually discussed way back when they were making Soldier of Orange. This was an idea that originated back then, and they decided to revisit it. And the resulting film was called Black Book, and it was a major critical success. And I actually watched it this week, and it is I had never seen it before. I'd never seen any of his post-Hollow Man stuff. I watched Black Book this week, and it is outstanding. It's outstanding, and it's also very fitting as, as a it feels much more like a Hollywood movie, ironically, than, than uh, a lot of his stuff, like in production value, but it's still got some pretty controversial stuff in it. Uh, it's about a, uh, a Jewish woman who go, joins the resistance and goes undercover, basically, to try to seduce an SS officer and actually falls in love with him. Uh, which you can see oh, how wow. that could be considered yeah. an issue. Immediately um, a problem. Yeah, but uh, it's a 
great movie, a really great movie. And I, I would highly recommend watching it. Uh, he followed that film up with another one after another six years. He spent another six years not doing movies. Uh, the next movie he made was Tricked, which was a sort of user-generated film experiment. It sounds really weird. I have not seen it, and I, I don't quite understand how they did it. It's only about 55 minutes long, but apparently people could vote on and choose plot points, and Verhoeven made a version of the movie based on that, and then other people made another version on it. It sounds very strange. I don't quite understand it. Holy but- crap, that sounds really familiar. Like, people could vote on stuff. Like, I... I Man, I totally, I don't think I ever connected the dots, but I, that does sound really familiar to me. Yeah, I don't, I don't know a whole lot about it. Um, critical reviews were okay on that one. But then in 2016, he released his next full-length theatrical film. That was L, which went on to be nominated for several awards across the world, including Isabel Hubbard, uh, who, who plays the lead. She got nominated for an Oscar. Uh, but of course, because this is Verhoeven, this was, again, not without its fair share of controversy. It is a rape centric movie i don't rape centric seems like a weird term but Mm. i don't know how else to say it uh so and and i am i am very glad that verhoeven is now working on projects that keep him artistically fulfilled you know i kind of miss his presence in hollywood uh, but i'm glad that he's getting to do stuff that is speaking to him as an artist because you know i i really don't think the hollywood of the 20th century or the 21st century rather really has a room for a guy like Verhoeven, this now 80 year old perverted controversial figure who will just do what he thinks needs to be shown. Even if he knows that people are going to find it uh, problematic, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's not like I'm not, I'm not praising problematic (laughs) behavior, but I'm saying he has an artistic vision that he wants to get across and if that doesn't fit in the Hollywood mold, fuck it. I'm going to go somewhere else and make it. So, so what you're saying is is very interesting to me because I just uh, I don't know how the let's see how do I put this? I I would say Justin that you might be the most woke among us, and uh, <laughs> and uh, and it's not that any of us are like like I'm saying we're like you know racist or homophobes or anything like that. Like I'm not I'm not trying to put that across, but. Just curious about like uh, sometimes I make like tasteless jokes every once in a while and that sort of thing, but looking at a guy like Verhoeven, I'm, like do you think like if he came around now, like he'd be just like destroyed? Like it feels like to me, just yeah. based on the reviews for this movie, that that people immediately like I read a few, but that was just the tip of the iceberg on the reviews and like Letterbox where people are like he's praising rape or he's okay with rape and i'm like fuck man that is not what the guy's talking about like, yeah no i think that if he were to come around and make movies now then he would absolutely be destroyed by people on the internet who just want a reason to be outraged uh because that that sort of conversation doesn't leave any room for nuance and you have to understand what the artist's intention is he is not he is not romanticizing rape like that one or that, that one reviewer said, right. He is, it is very clear that Sebastian Kane is a bad dude and he is committing a bad crime when he does that. There's that nothing romanticized not about it. It's about not that like happy music plays on the score afterwards right. or it's like triumphant hero music. It's that, no, this guy just fucking took advantage. Yeah. It is. It is proving how bad he has gotten, you know, like that it's not there. 
it's not trivial. It's not there just to get a rise out of people. It's not making a joke or making light of it. It's proving that this bad guy, just how bad he now is. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of people on the internet don't allow, they, they just see it as a rape and they want to immediately latch on that and saying, oh, he's showing it. So he's, he's romanticizing it. And like, no, he's, he's not, he's absolutely not like view it in the context of the full story that's being told. Yeah. I think with, uh, cause I dealt with a similar issue in standup comedy of getting asked by newer comedians, the age old question, what can't you talk about on stage? And my answer is always, it's not what can't you talk about on stage? It's what can't you talk about on stage? Meaning if you don't have the skill to pull off that particular bit and you haven't worked it, you haven't tested it out at open mics and refined it and honed it, it's not going to work. I don't care how good your stage presence is. It's not going to work. And when we're talking about this, I wonder how much of, I wonder how much of Verhoeven's message is i mean obviously it's colored by his life experience but i wonder if there's an element of it that's for lack of a better term maybe lost in translation in terms of it's not a secret that films from overseas are very different from films here in the states yeah so i wonder if something like that maybe it just wasn't meant for american audiences maybe maybe america wasn't ready for it yet or maybe and maybe the, maybe the message got lost somewhere. I, I, you know, I would imagine that at a certain point in your life, like when you've seen some shit, right? Mm-hmm. Like you've you're it's, it's probably hard for us to comprehend as you know, I, I'm not like saying this to dismiss anything, but in general, how sheltered we could be mm-hmm. as an audience when you're Paul Verhoeven and you've also seen dead bodies because of the Nazis, like fucking people up Um, at a certain point, like somewhere in there, something probably clicked. And he's just like, now nothing's off limits. I will talk about whatever I feel like talking about. Like I've seen everything that there is to see. I've seen the darkest side of man, you know, (laughs) like, so you're just like, uh, I don't know if that sounds dismissive, but it's just like, you're just like, fuck it. I'll say whatever I feel like saying, and I'll discuss whatever topic I feel like talking about and take it or leave it. And, uh, and that's on one hand, it's a tough thing to deal with, but if the intentions and the context is solid, then I don't, you know, maybe it's not for everybody, but I also don't feel like you could, you know, restrain that either because sometimes that leads to something, you know, like it leads to good art really. Right. And just to sort of, sort of cap off what I, the point I, uh, was making and what Gary elaborated on. I think, you know, maybe we don't get it, but maybe also, you know, flip side of the coin, maybe another part of comedy, you got to know your audience. You got to be able to read the room and maybe, maybe, maybe he didn't do that as well as he thought he did, or maybe in, in with the writer, maybe the writer didn't, I, you know, I, I think he you, uses, you can, you can, you know, well, you can no, analyze no, but, this but, stuff all day long, but. Well, he uses rape a lot. Like Justin brought yeah. that up earlier. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, he, he he does use it a lot. So I could see how like somebody could take that and like run with it and be like, it's it's one thing. I also think that there's a part of me that feels like Verhoeven just sees that as like 
that's the ultimate darkness. So when I need to show you that somebody's a shit, like a piece of shit, like that's, that's as worse as it gets. Like he's not like praising it. He's just saying like, this is the bottom of the barrel. I mean, when it happens in showgirls, it is the worst scene in that movie to watch. Like it is, it is the, I should say it is the hardest scene in that movie to watch by far. Mm. You know, uh, it, it is showing just how dark this the showbiz life is, just how dark everything's under the glittery surface. Like he is not trying to make it seem like it's cool or, you know, like fun or, or good in any way whatsoever. Nobody's right. ever happy after it. That's the thing. No, it's like, no. I'm like, what? I don't, I don't, I just don't get it why people think he's romanticizing it. There's, ne- yeah. there's never a point in any of these movies where it sees as close as he gets, by the way. It's probably in flesh and blood. And, yeah, yeah, uh, flesh and blood. It's a little that that was he hits a gray area there. Yeah, which maybe he learned from or something because he never really goes back to exactly that. But well, even there, I, I, you could argue it's part of the story that she's she's taking the power by right making him feel like he's in charge. You know, like it's like a manipulation tactic yeah, on her yeah. part. But anyway. But I mean, Verhoeven is like, he is totally unlike anyone else making movies these days. I mean, we live in an era where most action movies are carefully hedged, PG-13 effects extravaganzas often attached to some existing intellectual property. And yeah, there are directors who can get across their personal vision doing that. Someone like a James Gunn can do that, but very few people can navigate that world and still make it seem like their movie. You know, uh, a lot of, you know, I love the Marvel movies, but these are not an artist's movies. These are a company's movies. These are a corporation's movies. And sometimes you can find artists that work within them. Most of the time you can. That's why you keep hearing about guys, you know, like an Edgar Wright who get fired from doing the Marvel project, you know, Uh, like Verhoeven would not work within the, what is considered the current blockbuster Hollywood mold. He absolutely yeah. would not. Yeah. That, you know, that's okay. Like, I mean, it's like Marvel, you're going to see the Marvel movies because you want to, I mean, you do want to have fun with them. Don't get me wrong. And you want to see, you do want them to have different stories and different visuals and, and that sort of thing. But you, you, you're interested in the MCU as a whole. Right. And, uh, right. Yeah. Then there are people like Verhoeven who are visionaries and like, just have this, I don't know this this style and uh i don't know i i guess i'm bummed out by him at the end here <laughs> like i'm like well, i, I, mean, I saw hollow making... man again and i'm like god dude this movie's this movie's fine like, he's still this... making good movies is the thing they're just not being made it within the hollywood system maybe we'll do a follow-up series on this one day uh like like we did with toby hooper like a sequel series we'll call it the second coming of paul verhoven oh perfect, perfect title <laughs> as long as you spell it correctly justin <laughs> it fits in with his jesus obsession and everything like that's what we'll do down the line next year 2022 <laughs> we'll do that maybe uh we'll talk about these three movies that he's made uh later on we gotta but... hunt him down we'll just get him on the show <laughs> what else is he doing maybe he'll talk I mean, to he's, us he's 80 years old i think he's slowly dying is what yeah he's, <laughs> he's probably uh, you think he knows how to use zoom i don't know <laughs> i doubt it <laughs> if you compare the mo- like modern science fiction and action movies like the marvel movies or any other big studio movie to the films that verhoven made in the 80s and 90s 
it's abundantly clear that Verhoeven was always more than just a technician behind the camera. Uh, he's an artist. He, he really is. And he's one whose chosen medium happens to just be tits and gore filled extravaganzas on the big screen. But he injected every film that he made in Hollywood with his own kind of unique brand of Dutch madness. And in leaving Hollywood, I mean, he did, he really did leave behind a hole that just can't be filled any other way. Not even by Kevin Bacon's floppy wiener. Hey, you know, I don't know. He's doing all right. Kevin's he's, he's, you know, he's fine. He's doing all right. (laughs) Have you seen wild things? Yeah. He's, (laughs) he's slinging meat, man. He's, he's, He's no slouch. <laughs> I mean, compared to me, I don't know. <laughs> he's, he's doing all right. He's, it's always those little skinny guys like only, Justin. You know, only you never slouch, know. Only like, slouch he's got is because of the weight of his massive, massive dong. Right. <laughs> well, that seems like a good place to end our Paul Verhoeven series. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you guys for joining us for 14 weeks. I mean, seven episodes, but 14 weeks since we're bi-weekly. 14 weeks we have lived within the world of Paul Verhoeven. I uh, hope you guys, I hope I'm our listeners are enjoying day. these like deep dives into uh, director's filmographies because I think it's fascinating. I think it's really fun to see the progression of of a, uh, a director's work, especially directors like Verhoeven, who we consider to be like, like real artists, you know, uh, and are doing really cool stuff. And just to see the way that these themes resonate from one film to another uh, you can only do that if you like if you're watching them back to back to back like like we're doing so i think it's really unique and really fun i i agree i think this is i mean as a as a fellow uh film you know an amateur film nerd i i will say <laughs> like it, it's been a lot of fun to see like some of these directors and their process and like just the filmmakers in general just like with verhoven for instance I'm getting really defensive of him at the end here just because I'm like, man, I, I love like every movie this guy's made. You did that with Toby Hooper too. No, yeah, maybe I got there the way with Toby. Yeah. Well, you start to appreciate him. Like, yeah, you, you hear do. the story and you hear mm-hmm. the struggles and you hear And the... you hear from their point of view. Yeah. Even when and the movies like... don't land, you know what they were going for. And you also know that there are factors that even as the director are beyond their control. Yeah, yeah. And so even with Toby, where I'm like, not every movie is my favorite movie. It's just like, I appreciate Toby and I know what he was trying to do. And it sucks. It sucks when, I don't know, because it it is easy to sit there and criticize people and and, and filmmaking. And like you said, Justin, early on, like where you want to kind of even take it easy a little bit on these people because of like even Holloman, like how how much they went through to make this fucking movie. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, yeah. It's just, I don't know. Anyway, Verhoeven, I know you're listening. I love you. <laughs> We're fans. We are fans. And we, we will revisit his later films one day down the line, but not yet. This is the end of this series for now. We wanted to talk about specifically his like 25-year period working in Hollywood. So that's what we covered. Uh, but next week or next let's, episode. Let's get into somebody who's a little more milk toast, like just bland and nothing, yeah. nothing going on. Just yeah, like nothing. the standard, kip, preferably cis white males, uh, <laughs> hetero, if we can do it. Like, well, get... unfortunately, Gary, well, not unfortunately, because it's not unfortunately that this is who we're talking about. But unfortunately, for your, if that's what you want, that is not what you're going to get. Uh, next week, we are diving into some of the most fascinating filmmakers and most influential filmmakers of 
the 21st century, I would say. I would say, I would say that their breakthrough film may be the most influential movie of the last 25, 30 years. That's fair and to I, say. I, I, I don't I, I don't say that lightly. I think that's absolutely true. Uh, next episode, and we're gonna this is this series is gonna take us through the end of the year, first week of January or so probably. Uh, but we are talking about the Wachowskis. We're starting. We're gonna of course talk about the Matrix movies, but we're starting with their first film starring hot ass Gina Gershon. God bless her. <laughs> We're talking about Bound on our next episode. Uh, so join us for that if you want to if you want to stream it. Or even if you on. don't want to. Yeah, we're, we're talking <laughs> about it regardless. <laughs> it's, your, uh, it's your homework assignment. If you do want to watch it with us, then head to cinemashock.net. You can find links to stream all the movies that we're talking about here. And uh, we'd love for you to watch it along with us because we do obviously dive into spoiler territory on every episode. But we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of the Wachowski's career next week, even probably back to their childhood and their pre-film career growing up in, in Chicago. And we're going to go all the way through everything, including the Matrix 4 when it comes out at the end of December. We're going to yeah. we're gonna discuss that one when it comes out, too. Can so, I just say, like, at, at, at this episode, I have never seen the sequels to The Matrix since I saw them in the theater. Oh, okay. Really? I, I'm glad you added that second part, because... <laughs> Oh, no, no, uh, I thought oh, you were going to say you had never I, seen yeah, I was like, that a little weird. I'm no, fairly certain I saw at least one of those seen... with you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have not seen the Matrix sequel since theater. I've seen them. Um, I have. I, I mean, I, I have, but not never many times. Never seen the Animatrix at all. Oh, well, we'll, we, well oh, the man. Animatrix, we will talk about the Animatrix as probably part of a um, bonus episode. All right. We'll it's, do a bonus it's, episode. That one. It's, it's great. I, I, I like it by itself, but it so much of it ties it's a bridge some, between one and two and i notoriously kind of hated fills speed in racer, the gaps so gotta of that too yeah which you one? do and speed racer oh yeah i love it so yeah that's the one that's a, i'm a little shaky on i'm excited we'll yes. we'll do it again. I, i'm ready i'm ready to watch <laughs> Try it again, again. <laughs> yeah uh and and you guys uh i don't think either of you have seen cloud atlas or jupiter ascending right neither of those have i seen or sense eight which we're not doing an episode on sense eight I'll go ahead and say that, but I do think it's an integral part of their story. So we will discuss it on one of the other episodes. So just, oh, just so to let much. people know. So we're about to just like Wachowski all over you. It's <laughs> just so much Wachowski all over your face. It's going to be exciting. <laughs> well, join us next week for that and head to cinemashock.net again you can find links to where you can stream all the movies that we talk about uh you can find links to buy our merch to all of our episodes bonus episodes uh everything everything you want to know all of our series you can find all the episodes linked together uh so it, you know if you want to if you've got a friend who's a fan of paul verhoeven go to cinemashock.net you can send them the entire paul verhoeven series on a web page so that they can just you know access those episodes conveniently Justin, you've been working magic. Yeah, man. It's a good website. We have a good website. <laughs> Where can you be found on the internet, fellas? Go ahead, Gary. I'm at this is Gary Horn on all of the social medias you can find me. I'm at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all of the socials. And if you like Star Trek, you can come check out my podcast, the Computer Resume podcast, where we discuss the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for fans new and old. 
And yes. you can also hit that up at Computer Resume on all the socials. And also watch Gary's uh, or listen to Gary's wrestling bullshit on This Is Pro Wrestling. At TIPW Show. Or just go to the NWA's official YouTube channel. You'll see yeah. us all over that thing. Yeah, I'm all he over the partying NWA. with Ric Flair this weekend. Uh-huh. Billy Corgan. Billy and, Corgan. Uh, yeah, I'm an uh, assistant producer. Like yeah. I've got, I, I got film cred. I could start an IMDb. <laughs> yeah, you should. You absolutely should. <laughs> <laughs> and I am Justin underscore Bishop. I do not have any film cred, but other than have, this podcast, I Justin. do have opinions. <laughs> and in the 2021 isn't that what really matters that's, that's yeah, all very that matters <laughs> white guys with beards and opinions and, that's, that's what a, matters that's actually the, we're changing the name of the podcast <laughs> <laughs> uh you can find us at cinema underscore shock on twitter and instagram i've kind of slacked on the instagram this week because i've been overwhelmed with other stuff but usually it's pretty cool <laughs> yeah you do good work and we got to organize that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. But uh, you need help. Yeah. Not, we're also not like on you Facebook. need help, but it would be good of us to help you more. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you can also find us on Facebook and on Discord. You can find that link on our website too. Join us there. Until next week, may the wigs of liberty never lose a feather and be excellent to each other. God has spoken and Johnny has the keys. <laughs> hate it that's so dumb it's not it's getting it, we've been doing this this, this one year. this one was this that, one was bad for quotes man like i was scrolling phrase, through the quotes and i was like oh, none of these are gonna work that catchphrase is a year old <laughs> can, I know. Yeah, that's, uh, that's his he owns it now yeah.